Hello, and welcome to It's Not Magic, a podcast from Sixth Street about business building that strips away the pretense and gets right to the useful stuff. I'm your host, David Steepleman. Welcome to season two. We use this show to talk to founders and industry leaders and get them to explain in plain English what they set out to do and specifically how they do it. This is a really special episode to kick off our second season. It was recorded live at the Concrete Rose Summit. You may remember our conversation with Sean Mendy of Concrete Rose from earlier this year in season one. The summit was a really incredible gathering of 200 founders of color, Concrete Rose LPs and advisors, and an all-star lineup of tech executives there to support Concrete Rose's mission of deploying financial and social capital to talented, underrepresented founders. It's what brings me energy. Like I can turn fear into like faith and hope and optimism and like, let's go get it, let's go do it. And I just, I just love that. I love living my life that way. That's Stacy Brown Philpot. Stacy is amazing. She's a successful tech executive, the former CEO of TaskRabbit, and before leading that company, spent almost a decade at Google, during which she led operations for all of Google's consumer products, including Google Search, as well as Google's operations in India. She's the founder of the Black Googlers Network, which has been instrumental in growing the community of Black employees at Google and in tech more broadly. We talked about all kinds of things, including leading through crisis, being one of the only Black women leaders in tech, and so much more. She's now the founding partner of the SoftBank Opportunities Fund, which invests in Black, Latinx, and Native American founders. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. We talk about the importance of leaving something better than how you found it, the difference between founding a company and coming into the CEO seat from the outside, and how you can't force all culture or community growth. Sometimes you have to let it happen on its own. We learn that doing your part to change the world may be scary at times, but it's not magic. Let's jump in. It's great to be here. Um, I'm not an excitable person, I don't think. My kids may say different. Um, but I'm so excited to be here for a number of reasons. One is that we're recording this conversation for the Sixth Street podcast, It's Not Magic. So you're all here to witness the creation of some historic content. No pressure. Um, and then, of course, I'm super excited because I'm talking with Stacy Brown Philpot, which is awesome. So I don't think you really need much introduction, but I'm going to do a little bit of introduction, which is obviously a founding member of SoftBank Opportunities Fund, which invests in Black, Latinx, and Native American founders and companies from seed to Series C, and of course, the former CEO of TaskRabbit. And we're going to talk about a bunch of your other stops along the way. I want to start, if we can, at themes or through lines through your career. And one way to think about your career, and I've been, I've been thinking about your career and your journey, is that from, I don't know, even from Detroit to Penn to Goldman to Google to Stanford to Google to TaskRabbit, you've been kind of on the, the idealistic side of tech, building community, changing the world, doing good things. Is, is that a fair way to think about it? And if so, well, if not, tell us why. And if so, was that deliberate? It's an interesting question because I grew up in Detroit where we were taught community, family values, work ethic, work hard, get what you pay for, what you see is what you get. And so that was like, those were the values that I grew up with. And I knew nothing about Silicon Valley. I didn't know what these people were doing out here. I went to Goldman Sachs, the businesses that we did M&A transactions on actually made money and were profitable. 
And so when I got to the Bay Area, they're like, oh, these people out here, they are changing the world. Like this is the ecosystem, and this was in 2000, like everybody out here is on a mission to change the world. So when you ask me a question of like, I followed an idealistic path, and it was that intentional, and I'm like, wasn't, isn't everybody in here out to change the world? And if you're not, what are you doing? Why are you here? And so for me, it's my upbringing that really helped me see that if I'm gonna be in any room, in any circumstance, in any environment, like I have to leave it better than I found it. I have to talk to somebody who I wouldn't otherwise talk to. I have to help somebody who I wouldn't otherwise help. Sean asked me to do this summit. I said, sure. And then he's like, oh. I said, what day is it? And he tells me, it's like, today. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's my birthday. I'm going away for my birthday. And I'm like, but for you, I will go later because I know how important this is to you. And so I don't know how this works in the future and what comes of the next 41 minutes and 48 seconds we have together, but I'm doing it because it matters. And so if that's being idealistic means, like that's, that's just the essence of who I am. Well, okay, but let's, I wanna dig into that a little bit. So maybe we take the moment where you're at Google, and we'll t I wanna talk about your time at Google, but I wanna take a moment to talk about the moment where you're leaving Google. You're a senior executive there, you have, an, you have a successful almost decade run there and you're thinking there's more. Can you talk about that? That was hard. To leave Google was so hard because my mother, when I joined Google, she's like, if this Google thing doesn't work out, you can always go back to Goldman Sachs. And that was in 2003 when it wasn't the company that it is today. Google had about 1,000 employees. So the company grew to 50,000. I'm sitting in this corner office with like floor to ceiling windows on two sides. I had my dog in his bed. I had a desk. I had an assistant. I had a huge team. I think I was managing like 600 people at the time. And I was extremely comfortable and I had a baby. Um, and Emma was probably, you know, five weeks old when I started the process of thinking about what I was going to do. And Google had like mother's rooms with refrigerators in them. So you can not have to like tote all your stuff around, <laughs> those of you who are parents. And I just didn't even imagine, and it's, it's the company that everybody wanted to work at. Our acceptance rate was like lower than Harvard and Stanford and Princeton at any Ivy League school for applications. Um, but as I looked around, I started to really feel two things. One was just, I wasn't pushing myself. I wasn't at the precipice anymore and looking down thinking like, whoa, I might fall off. And if I fall, like it's, it's gonna hurt. Um, and so I felt like I wasn't taking risks. The other one is that I had become this sage. I had been there for so long that people would just show up at my office and be like, can you walk me through this thing three years ago that happened? And like, what was the history? And I was like, I am not Yoda. Like I, and so I did not want to be Yoda. And so it was time for me to go. And so I had to break up with this great opportunity in order to really see the TaskRabbit opportunity when it came along. Okay, so you're describing like being on the precipice and about to fall off. That sounds bad, but you like that. Why do you like that? It's what brings me energy. I 
can turn fear into like faith and hope and optimism and like, let's go get it. Let's go do it. And I just, I just love that. I love living my life that way. Is that a clap of recognition? Like you can all do that. How do you do that? <laughs> how do you do that? Like, or are you asking like, tell us more about how that gets done? You know, I grew up in an environment where we were taught to act a certain way, be a certain way. If any of you for traditional black families, like you never talk back to adults and all these things. There's a lot of structure in it, um, in my upbringing. But I also grew up learning how to advocate for myself. And every time I put myself out there, like most of the time it worked out. And so every time I tried it, I said, oh, hey, wait, what if I try to go to the school that nobody thinks I can get into? Like Penn, I got in, I was like, oh, that worked out. What if I, you know, try to get into Stanford Business School? That worked out. And so most of the time, the things that we think are the things that we will fail at are never really truly failures. They're just learning moments. And I learned how to see potential risks as not this fearful thing where like everything's gonna fall apart, but actually there's a learning moment on the other side of it. And I was more excited about the learning than I was afraid of the potential failure. So that might be a mindset shift that how do you do it? That might be how you do it. Got it. I actually, I wanna to touch on something you said, which is this sort of, um, in your upbringing and, and sort of moving forward, this, this kind of, maybe it's a competitive drive, it's a drive, it's always making stuff happen, it's always like powering through, working hard, you know, being prepared, all the stuff that everybody in the room as founders that you have to do. But we're talking about leadership in part. Is that good leadership? What's the cost of that? And is it, does that always work or have you had, actually there was, a, what, did, what did Denai say? We should be sharing, our, we should reveal our intentions. That was one of the principles. I'm asking because, that was the prompt. I'm asking because I, I think it doesn't always work. That, that's not always, that doesn't always carry us all the way through and it has some real costs. Am I right? It does. Um, you can be wrong. <laughs> and there's a lot of consequences. So I remember, like you, many of you in this room, you all started your companies. You've always only ever been the CEO of the thing. And I grew up as an executive in companies and I became the CEO of TaskRabbit, but first I was a COO. And I always thought, well, you know, the CEO thing can't be that hard. They get to go to all these meetings and these conferences and stay at these hotels. <laughs> like, really, how hard is it? Um, so you get the job and I'm like, wait, there are meetings and there are conferences and there are hotels, but there's this pressure of, all right, people have trusted you with most of their waking hours of the day to follow you on a mission, a purpose, a path that you believe with Let's, call, let's face it, y'all, 70% confidence is really gonna work. Like we're all, we're all being honest with each other. But if you're in front of everybody, you're like, no, we're 110% sure this thing is gonna work. And you've gotta get up there and like be 110% when it's really more like 70, 69, 70%. And that feeling of responsibility and trust that you have to carry is difficult. And so when it's wrong, it's bad. We had a bad like product change at TaskRabbit. 
and it cost us a bunch of revenue. Let's actually, talk about that if you don't. That mind. was terrible. Um, we changed the product because we were trying to grow, and we needed to pivot in order to grow. Some of you are in the middle of a pivot. You know what I'm talking about. Um, and we launched this big change, and it was going to cost us about 70% of our revenues because we were shifting to focus on certain categories that at the time was 30% of the revenue, but we knew it would grow faster. And it was unclear if that was really gonna work, but we had a lot of conviction and the team was sort of like, I don't know. I mean, nobody really knew. We had the data, but whatever, it doesn't matter. If the customer doesn't show up, you don't have a business. So we went down, revenues went like this, and we said, all right, we got 60 days to see the corner turn. Like we gave ourselves a timeline. We set some metrics on what we wanted to see. We wanted to see better NPS and better customer quality and better fulfillment rates. Like there was some core kind of business metrics we were looking for. But in that 60 day period, I was terrified that this thing was not gonna work. And people trusted their lives and the taskers were, were and even more important than the employees. We promised them they would make more money go with us, you will make more money. And many of our taskers earned their livelihood on our platform. So this was serious stuff. This is like, can I pay my rent this month or not? And sure enough, they were able to set better hourly rates. They were able to get more tasks on a more frequent basis. They were able to do things like consolidate tasks in certain geographies within certain cities so they can do more tasks in a day, which meant that like their hourly rate and their daily rates went up. And so there were a lot of things that we weren't sure were gonna work and we had to make this change and we made it and, and it worked out, but there's a trust element that the cost of it is if you get it wrong, it's really wrong for a lot of people. Do you remember a moment when you're in the dip and you're sitting there and someone comes in your office and they're like, I don't, I don't think it's gonna work. And like, what did you do? Did you yeah. project 110% you're sure? A lot of our clients who use the service were not happy with this change and um, they were upset and they were calling. So I agreed to do some of the calls. I said, fine, I'll take calls. Leah was taking calls, she was still running the company, now the COO. Leah was the founder. Leah's the founder. Um, so I was like, I'll take some calls. I remember sitting in my living room at 7 p.m. talking to like one of our highest spending clients, most active. She was like, you know, if you have like the 80-20 rule, which we didn't, but if we did have one, she'd be in that category. And she was yelling at me. I can't believe you made this change. I'm never gonna Ooh. use TaskRabbit again. Do you understand how much money I spend on the platform? This is awful. Oh. And I was sitting on my couch and I, I got off the phone and I cried. And I was like, we are screwed. And I just, if this is, this is, the, this is the type of client that we wanted to be happy with this. We wanted her to like use TaskRabbit forever and she was done with us. She was done. And that was the moment when I said, this isn't gonna work. It was like the conviction of like, we promised 60 days, we promised these metrics, we can't let one client you know, dictate like the future of this company. But I, it was 7 p.m. and by 7, 12 p.m. I was sitting there thinking like we made a huge mistake. Yeah. Wow, that's on story. <laughs> Turns out it was a good decision. Turns out it was a good you decision. came out of the nosedive. We came out, it was a good decision. She did start using TaskRabbit again. Because <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> she didn't really have a choice, but you know. Um, what, what we learned was that, you know, when you're building community and we're talking about community, people think that they own the company. And I should have remembered that lesson from Google, which is when Google became so big, everybody thought they like owned Google. And any decision Google made was like, this is terrible, I, this is awful. This is my search engine, this is my, this is my company. Well, the same thing she was TaskRabbit where the clients and taskers, that this was their livelihood. This is how they got things done. And like, you make a change, this is my, this is my company. That's the power of a strong community, but also sometimes the cost. So yes, it worked out, we ended up you know, shifting to just a few categories. Our fulfillment rates went up. We were able to sort of invest in growth because our LTV to CAC ratios got better and everything went well. But that was a that was a dark moment. I mean, the interesting part of it also was that the taskers started teaching each other, hey, you want to get better at whatever, name your task. I don't know how to do anything, so I yes. can't name a task off the top of my head. Nailing a nail into something. Uh, and they actually like were making videos and helping out each other and it was like this community kind of reinforcing itself. Was that part of the underwriting when you underwrote the change? It was, it was absolutely part of it because we always give the example of people making YouTube videos on how to drill a hole in a brick wall. Because in some cities, like I lived in like an exposed brick wall apartment in New York, but there are a lot of places where you can't, it's not like a plaster wall, it's very hard. It's a different skill to mount TV um, on a brick wall. And, but if you can do that, like there's a premium you can charge on your hourly rate. And so we had a tasker who put together this YouTube video, didn't even, we didn't ask him to do it. He just said, look, I wanna help people be successful. And that became part of the community. And so one time I hired a tasker to like change some light switches in my house one time. And he came and I said, well, how did you learn how to do this? And he's like, two years ago, I, I didn't know what a handyman was. I didn't know how to do anything. And he's like, I've basically been watching YouTube videos for the last two years, practicing in my house. My wife is so over me, taking stuff apart and putting it back together. But that is how I've been able to earn a living for our family. And that, and that was a part of the community that we knew we wanted to happen. You couldn't force it. It had to be organic, because it couldn't be the company training people how to do a good job. It needed to be our best taskers caring about the community enough to teach other people. And that's what made it more viral. I want to fast forward to end of 2019, beginning of 2020. You'd sold the company to Ikea. Um, speaking, of, I, I'm having flashbacks of trying to put together pieces of furniture from Ikea. I'm very bad at that. Um, and you have come up with a succession plan. You're like, we accomplished a lot. Like, I'm good. And COVID starts to happen. You start to see a flashing red light, metaphorically speaking, from Seattle. What, tell us what happened. My transition plan, I had three objectives post-acquisition. Number one, not suck. <laughs> Just make this thing work. <laughs> like, it should not suck for like the employees at TaskRabbit and for Ikea and the people who got up in front of their board and like bet on us and champion this deal. Number two, so that was year one, like, let's make this thing not suck. We could all get the Ikea discount in the store and it works. Like that was a big issue because we all got, we got acquired people went shopping. Like I did discount, didn't work. This sucks. I was like, we got to fix this. It can't suck. We literally have to make sure everybody gets that 10% discount. <laughs> Number two was like, 
make it commercial. Let's actually grow this opportunity. Let's not let sit here with like this great little TaskRabbit business, but figure out how do we really grow? So we grew to be, like Ikea became a quarter of our revenues. We launched in a bunch of new countries with Ikea as part of our, our big commercial partner, which saved us a bunch of marketing dollars. Their NPS scores went up. Their unaided awareness about service actually improved, which was important for them as a brand. So I was like, great, commercial value. And then the third was like team, like get a team in place that can carry this thing forward. This is not about you, Stacy, or Leah as the founder, it's about the legacy that we leave. And so um, I built a team, we've got some more senior executives who knew how to run global teams. And so I started the process of my transition at the end of 2019. And then January comes and there's a thing in Japan Remember, and we all were like, oh, that's the thing in Japan on a cruise ship. And then, and, then, and then there was something in Seattle, like, wait, this virus is in America, what's going on? Um, and so by March, we were shutting down the marketplace. And I remember we were supposed to have an offsite the middle of March, 2020, literally canceled it. And then at the end of the month, we were supposed to have a board meeting and all of the IKEA team was coming in for the board meeting and they were going to interview the candidates for the CEO job. That was that meeting. Of course, that meeting didn't happen. It was virtual. We were all on Google Meet. We weren't using Zoom yet. And the conversation was very different. A bunch of candidates pulled out of the process. We had to shift our timeline. And the entire meeting was about do we keep the marketplace open or not? TaskRabbit marketplace because it was unclear what this virus was, how it could impact people. People were dying, they were in hospitals, there was not enough equipment in the hospitals. There was no, we didn't understand. I mean, we were, remember we weren't wearing masks then? There was no such thing, there was no such concept. And so as, at the board meeting, we're talking about what do we do? And at this point, Ikea had closed all their stores because that was a mandate that they had so you got to shut down, Stacey. But we had a bunch of taskers who were active on their Facebook group asking us to keep the marketplace open because they'd been furloughed or, you know, they lost their jobs and there was no rent relief. They had no idea if they were going to be able to pay their bills. So we had to make this really difficult decision to keep it open. And we debated it for about an hour and we went back to like our mission and our values which was caring deeply. And like, if we're really gonna care, we can't just let people go broke. We also had all these clients who are like, oh my God, my kids are at home and wait, we're not going back after spring break and we need desks, we need trampolines, we need stuff in our backyard. We need all these things. We have no idea. We, I don't wanna go outside, I'm scared. So we created a very safe way for our tasks to continue to task because we cared enough about our community to find a way to get through like one of the hardest times that we faced as a society. I mean, taskers on the front lines of that. On the front it's line. an incredible story that you're making decisions at the bleeding edge of this thing that governments are getting wrong, everyone's getting like no information. It's it's incredible. Hopefully with lesser, you know, sort of broad global consequences, but I'm I'm interested in how I'm thinking about the founders in the room. We're in some economically turbulent times now. If you read the financial press or whatever, you are thinking, gee, what's coming? Maybe a recession. How would you 
you can talk about the economic indicators if you want or how, what you think is going to happen, but maybe more interesting for the founders in the room is how would you approach them? How would you prepare? How would you think about what might be coming? I would have perspective. I'm old enough now to have some more perspective, not as much as my 94-year-old grandmother, but definitely some, which was in 2000. It was a bad time. That was when Google came to be. 2008, really bad time. That was the dawn of the gig economy. All those companies, Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit, Airbnb, like right around that time. It was a time when, which I think is really important like we are now, where I don't think that ecosystem of independent contractor work could have, could have flourished if we weren't in the middle of a recession where people were like, I really have to find a way to make some money and how can technology be an enabler of that? And so when I look at today, it's really scary. When I think about, Chris and I went to dinner last night and he was like, is this really $97 worth of food? I was like, I think so, I don't know. We had a, we had a salad. <laughs> it is Palo Alto. Um, but prices have gone up and it's really scary to see you know, this happen and wonder is it gonna forever be that way? But a, but a different perspective might be to ask the question, what opportunities are being created today that we wouldn't otherwise have had? And how can we accelerate our pace in ways that we would not otherwise have been able to do? What can we learn from the mistakes that have been made over the last year that we want to do better at. And I think if you have that perspective, like that's the precipice view. Like it's not like how far down is that? It's kind of looking down and I drew this picture recently of like I'm at the precipice and there's the water. So if it's, a, it's a soft landing because it's in the water. But like there's like a fin coming out and it's either a shark or a dolphin. And so see it as a dolphin, not as a shark. So even if you fall, it's gonna be somebody in there that's gonna like make sounds and say, hey, Stacy's in here, somebody, let's like help her get out and not the shark that's gonna eat me. So I, I think if you see today like that, which is like, there's, it's a dolphin, not a shark. And even for at the press with something really scary, there's opportunity and I'm gonna go for it. That's a much better way to live right now. Let's talk about relationships. Relationships matter, I've heard you say that a couple of times, a number of times. What does good mentorship look like? And I'm asking in part because at some point there's going to be lunch and interstitial time and we're all encouraged to meet each other and share our stories. And how should people do that? With intention, we place this heavy load on mentoring. But relationships is really about being thankful for the opportunity to interact with somebody and the, the chance to get to know them. Because you never know when that meeting, that interaction is gonna turn into something more positive. And so be intentional and don't be aggressive. Like, oh, I really wanna meet, you know, you looked at the list, like, oh, I'm gonna go meet this person and make sure I pitch, you know, or make sure I walk through my, oh, we gotta structure this partnership. It's more about getting to know who the person is. I do a devotional every morning. Um, I'm a Christian by faith and I do a devotional every morning uh, with my best friend who lives cross country. And today's was about relationships and being grateful for the relationships. And so I was thinking about this event 
and why I was doing it. And relationships don't matter like today in this moment. They matter over time. And the learning that I had from my devotional this morning was just that, like, it's not about what's happening right now for somebody. It's about what you build over time with anybody and everybody. So be grateful for this opportunity to be here and go into every conversation with that form of gratitude. And it will come, something will come to bear. It may not be today. It could be a year from now, five years or 10 years. That's lovely. I like that. Um, we're in Silicon Valley, so I'm going to use the word pivot. We're going to pivot. I feel like Reed Hoffman was here. I, I, don't, I can't speak that language, but we're going to pivot. SoftBank Opportunities Fund. Talk about, if you would, the transition, if it is a transition, from entrepreneur, operator, executive to investor. And they're not mutually exclusive, obviously. But what was surprising, hard, not surprising? Yeah. It was easy to start the fund. We had the luxury of having Marcelo, who was at SoftBank at the time, get $100 million in 24 hours to invest in black. I know, I see she's laughing, she's like, what? Um, black, Latinx, Native American founders um, without, we didn't have a stated you know, mission statement or anything. We just knew that's what we wanted to do. And so the easy part was the getting the money. The easy part, which we didn't know was gonna be easy, was the number of companies we were gonna see. And I remember Paul Judge, who's also on the investment committee with me, like shared his email, Marcelo shared his email, and we got all these emails. We've seen over 2,000 companies. So like, obviously there's no pipeline problem. Look at all of you in this room. But two years ago, there was sort of a question of whether or not, well, are there enough companies to invest in? Of course there, are enough companies to invest in. And so that was much easier than we thought. I hope we've done a good job of following up with people and staying in touch with people and taking care of our founders. And some of them are in the room today. So if we've not done a good job, please complain and complain to me and tell me so that we can do better. And I told them when I said yes to this, it's on WhatsApp. And I was like, I don't wanna go to any meetings. I don't know anything about investing. I was still wrapping up at TaskRabbit. And I said, I'll be on the investment committee. I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. And I've always seen myself as an operator. So when I joined this investment committee and we're you know, talking about forming the fund and structuring things and seeing deals and approving deals, what became intellectually interesting and was hard for me was saying no and having a really good reason for saying no because we had heard that a lot of founders would get a no from a firm and like some blanket answer, some like two sentences. It was lame. And I was like, I would read these things. And I'm like, that's lame. We actually have to give people the real feedback. Well, you can't give the real feedback because you never know if you're wrong. And I was like, you could always be wrong, but if you're not honest, why would somebody come back to you anyway? So that was, the, that was a hard part of figuring out how to communicate in an ecosystem that sometimes lacks honesty and the ability to really be truthful in a pass, frankly, in a pass and a no. The other part that I enjoyed the most is like working with our portfolio founders. And that was where my operating experience was exciting and I was really interested in sitting with them and talking to them. And I realized that I don't have to be in the seat to be valuable and to be helpful. 
when you are a CEO, you kind of take on this role of my impact is in this seat. This is how I can be valuable and most helpful, but I'm not in the seat. I'm on the board, I'm advising. And if I can help you not make some mistake that I made five years ago or skip some steps in hiring or making a partnership decision, and that changes the trajectory of your business or honestly helps you sleep better tonight, that is a wonderful outcome for me. And so I was worried that I wasn't gonna find fulfillment in doing investing work because I was so used to doing the thing myself yeah. and I found a lot of fulfillment in it. Oh, that's interesting. Can we go back to the, on the, the past, but the evaluation of the founder, the team, the idea, there's this myth of the founder, which I find incredibly annoying, like the obsessed guy usually with tousled hair, Zuckerberg showing up in his pajamas. I'm probably not allowed to say that in Silicon Valley, but anyway, that's like the story and it's annoying. And is that annoying to you? Like, or is that like part of the, like how has that evolved as you've, your, your screen, your filter, how has that evolved as you've seen thousands of companies? The beauty of having fund managers on the other side of the table who look like you is like, that's not even part of the conversation. Right. We're not even, we don't even know those people. We didn't grow up with those people. We know our version of that or framework around that is people who have worked hard, who've shown grit, who have perseverance. We know that like when a founder comes in the room who's a woman or a black person or a Hispanic person, like somebody of color, you have worked twice as hard to get there. And we know that because we've worked twice as hard to get to where we are. And so that lens alone changes the like, oh, we just want this typical Silicon Valley profile. No, we actually know the hardest working people are the people who had to work twice as hard to get anywhere that they are today. And those people are gonna work twice as hard to turn the $10 million that you give them into a billion dollar company. That's the difference. Got it. You were talking about helping portfolio companies and as an operator and that being, you being in a different seat, but being able to have impact and presumably across a broader portfolio. I think you guys at the, at the Opportunities Fund also talk about helping portfolio companies replicate social capital. How do you do that? Yeah, we, we work with them quite a bit to create a community within the, the Opportunity Fund portfolio. We have a value creation team, basically, that does that. And part of it is, when you're going from a founding stage of company or C stage, which a lot of our companies are, to raising that A, you're also getting to the stage where you need to hire executives and senior people in your company that you might not have a network with today. That first head of sales, that maybe your co-founder and you are like doing all the coding, but we really gotta put somebody in this role. And if you don't naturally have those networks, the pool of talent that you have to choose from is much smaller because you're a startup and you're competing with all the other startups and you're competing with Amazon and Google and Facebook with their high salaries. And so really it's your mission, it's your vision and how you communicate that narrative. And so part of what we do with our portfolio is help them understand how to communicate that narrative, but also build the network and build the relationships so that when it's time to make those key hires, they have a bigger network to do it. One thing that surprised me about going through the pandemic as a co-leader of a business is how much performance matters because you have to emote and you, we had to do that like sort of over screens, which is very, very hard. You clearly had to do that and, and um, you famously have talked about how sort of 
having your true self sort of out there was something that you had to get used to and you had to do that in sort of a packaged way. How did you do that? Is that a, is like a natural skill? Did you learn it at business school? Did you, like, how did you do that? Yeah, I, um, I grew up sort of learning how to be myself. And then I started to work and people started to fit you into certain molds. If you're gonna be at Goldman Sachs, this is how we do things. If you're gonna be at Stanford, this is how we do things. Um, if you're gonna be at Google, this is the googly way of doing things, which, and then one day I just realized how exhausting it was to try to be something other than who I was. It was very tiring. And so I just tried on me one time. And that was when I started wearing my hair natural at Google. And I was like, I'm just gonna try on me, see what happens. And it worked out. People were like, treated me the same and I felt better. Like it just, it just worked out. And, and I think some of it comes with age and time. So I remember when we were going, it was June and we were sort of post George Floyd murder and we were on Zoom trying to have conversations about what had happened. And I, in 2016, had already gotten up in front of the company in person when we had Philando Castile get murdered um, and just talk about what it was like to be a black person in America in front of a company where at the time we were about 6% black, now that we had grown since then. And they were so surprised that the CEO of the company would share such a thing. And this was, I became CEO in April of 2016, and this was July, this was like two months. I'm, I'm like the newbie in the job. But when I did that, it brought me so much closer to the team. They understood and could really see me for all of who I was. So when 2020 came, it was like, all right, we didn't have to do a whole lot of conversations to get to the real issue of what was going on. And allowing yourself to be really seen as a leader may feel extremely vulnerable, but it will, people will show up immediately and like rally and help you and believe in you and have conviction in a way that you can't possibly imagine if you don't do it. So there's some how in there and there's some why, and it's a scary thing of the why, but the other side of it is a more trusted community, which is your company, by you just showing up and being who you are. And then you're less tired. You're just like, I'm just who I am. And, and you can focus on other things too. Next 10 years for you? Oh boy. What are you looking forward to? Well, I have an 11 year old, so, and an almost eight year old, which means in 10 years, they will be, I will be an empty nester as people talk about. Um, and worst, so I, I know, I, I can't believe it. Don't let it I was happen. like the person who wasn't going to have kids at one point and then they came and now I'm like, they're going to leave me in like 10 years. Um, so I'm going to be a good parent. I want to figure out how to teach my daughters how to live great lives for themselves and other people. I think what Sean is doing and all of the people who've supported him, um, including you, David, is so important because we are changing the face of wealth creation. And it has to happen 
one person, one organization at a time. Um, somebody said there's $70 trillion or something like that that you can invest. And I don't even think that, you know, diverse communities, like I mean, the percentage even we're talking about, it's less than 1%. And so if we can make a small step to making that some number greater than 3% in 10 years, like that would be miraculous. Got a little bigger this week, but only a little bit bigger. A little bigger. A little. A little. Um, Detroit pizza? Yes. Is that, that's a thing. That's oh, a thing. There's, there's, <laughs> I did not expect that. <laughs> well, uh, like, should, we, should I get involved in that? You should get involved in that. Okay. And you Definitely. Have, do I have to go to Detroit to do that? I suppose I do. There's some places in San Francisco. I can give you a list. Okay, I'd like a list. Um, but you should go to Detroit. Of course. And have, it's kind of like the bread is different. Uh-huh. in Detroit because uh-huh. the water is different. Uh-huh. This, so, is, this is the old, so this the is the New York bagel thing, now it's the Detroit pizza thing. It's together. true. Uh, I sure, mean, the New sure. York bagel tastes different than any other bagel in the country I because agree. of the water. So it's that. like that. <laughs> you should definitely, <laughs> someone's agreeing with me. Exactly. exactly, right. This is a delight. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I love talking with you and um, happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> That was Stacey Brown Philpot. We spoke at the Concrete Rose Summit in Menlo Park, California on October 21st, 2022. We are so appreciative of Stacey's time. Here's what I think we learned. One, fear can be an asset. Stacey talked about the times when she stopped feeling that she was at the precipice and pushing herself further. That's when she knew it was time to go do something else. Getting comfortable being uncomfortable can be a great thing. Consider embracing it. Two, values matter. And the values of an organization formed in advance prove their worth in a crisis. Whether it was responding to the murder of George Floyd or deciding whether or not to keep TaskRabbit open during COVID, Stacy and her leadership team leaned heavily on the values they discussed and practiced and lived prior to having to make decisions in more difficult moments. Finally, and this is something that we've talked about before, it's important to be intentional in the context of building relationships. Quoting Stacy directly, she said, quote, relationships are really about being thankful for the opportunity to interact with somebody, end quote. It's about how you build personal relationships over time and really get to know people and that's how you form authentic partnerships. Thank you to Stacy, in particular for spending her birthday with us. And thank you to Concrete Rose for doing what they do and allowing us to be part of what was really an incredible event. We look forward to many more in the years to come. You've been listening to It's Not Magic, a Sixth Street podcast. You can read more about our guests on SixthStreet.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it and follow at Sixth Street News on Twitter for more on the show and our firm. Thanks to Six Street's production team, Patrick Clifford, Ritvi Shah, Kate Hannock, with sound engineering by Stephen Cologne. Our theme song is It's Not Magic, an original song from Patrick Dyer-Wolf. Once again, I'm David Stiepelman. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Six Street, and Six Street is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of or listening to this podcast is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Sixth Street. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details.